Welcome. So welcome if you haven't been here in a long time or if this is your first time. And uh, I'm Rabbi Jonathan, if I haven't met you all. And we are embarking on a seven-week exploration of the origins and history of Zionism. So this is a history class. I'm not a professional historian. I'm an amateur historian. <laughs> amateur is a nice word because it comes from lover, amateur. It's a lover. So an amateur is someone who just loves it. Um, and another of my favorite... Pardon? We're amateur graduates. That's right. And another of my favorite words is dilettante, which is someone who takes delight. So here I am. Uh, an amateur, a proud amateur and dilettante. You delight in being an amateur. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and as I'm looking around the room, um, there are people with a lot of historical knowledge here. And I'm happy about that because I welcome, this is going to be a discussion class as much as a, a lecture, and I welcome additions and corrections and deletions uh, uh, so we can, like, together, we'll put all our brains together, okay? But I also, and... When you study modern history, you're actually studying yourself. Because one of the, there's no way that this isn't personal. Not only as Jews who care about Israel, but also as modern people, Zionism would never have existed had it not been for the revolution of modernity. It's something we don't think about that much because it's just our reality. But until we, have, until we understand the radical... Um, uh, reorganization of society and culture that took place in the modern era, from Christendom to nation-states, from monarchies to, from, from Jews in the ghetto to Jews being able to participate in European society, until you understand the transformation that created in everyone's self-understanding, we, we'll, we will be guilty of many anachronisms of trying to project our understanding of what it means to be a human being, a citizen, a Jew, onto understandings that these understandings that we have did not exist 250 years ago, right? So we don't want to be guilty of saying, how could they have done that, right? How they uh, think about someone 200 years from now looking at our absurdities. Uh, exactly. <laughs> We're doing the best we can, we human beings, and it's, the jury's out, right? Okay, uh, but, the, the content, but nation states are the way the world organized itself in the modern era. Zionism was the national liberation movement of the Jewish people so that the Jews could take their place in the so-called family of nations. That's what the United Nations grew out of, right? This is all a modern construct. I predict there will be a time when nation states are irrelevant we may be heading there quickly now. <coughs> the European Union was an effort to make nation states less relevant. Uh, we don't know what the next organization is going to be. Part of the, uh, part of the uh, sort of uh, genius and amazingness of the Jewish people is our ability to reorganize ourselves <coughs> in every historical era so that we can survive. Right, um, and the reorganization of the Jewish people uh, into 
um, uh, for a large portion of us, being citizens or supporters of a nation state is an, is a, an extraordinary transformation of the way the Jews organized themselves prior to the modern era. Does that make sense, everybody? So we want to put our historical thinking caps on in this class. It'll make us better citizens, and it'll make us better analysts. Make sense, everybody? And I am doing the best I can, and so I'm always going to welcome your uh, analysis and your perspective. And I think amongst us, we can do a pretty good job. We're also lucky that um, I'm teaching this class also as a lecture in the LifeSpring um, adult education series that meets here on Wednesdays. So I got warmed up yesterday and, and got to think about the things I didn't say that I should have said. And uh, so you're, you're in luck. Um, I did okay. But I could do better. All right? So um, uh, let's see. Um, in the course of the next seven weeks, I don't have it mapped out class by class because I need to see where one ends so that we know where the next one will begin. We want to cover the ideological transformation and political transformation that led to the possibility of a Jewish national movement. Right? Uh, so that means talking about 19th century Europe. Uh, we want to uh, talk about the, um, the, the, the early stages of the Zionist movement, the, uh, the first and second and third Aliyah, these small waves of Jews coming mostly from Eastern Europe who uh, became the, became the uh, core of what become the leadership of the Jewish state. Uh, we want to talk about the origins of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that happened in the course of that. And uh, we want to talk about, uh, oh, I made a whole list, um, and the competing narratives. But we're not going to get to that until we understand this narrative. But we aren't going to ignore the narratives of the Palestinians. Uh, and, um, uh, that, you know, and we're also going to look at the internal conflicts within Zionism. In other words, there were many Zionist streams of thought, as there are today. We're also going to look at how, since the Six-Day War in 1967, um, uh, the labor Zionist vision was superseded by a religious Zionist vision that has led to the current state of affairs uh, in Israel today. All of that, uh, hopefully, we'll cover in ways that are enlightening and illuminating. Um, and again, We'll do our best, I'll do my best, to differentiate between when I t I'm telling you something that I think is historical fact or, you know, starkly grounded, and when I'm sharing my opinion. You know, and I'm happy to uh, be parsed on that. Uh, of course, history is a composed narrative of an unmanageable slew of events. So whenever you're talking history, you're still telling a particular version of the story. I'm fully aware of that. But if we don't, you know, then we're just, you know, we're just in the stew. So we want to do our best to come up with a relatively balanced narrative that reflects the massive changes that were taking place over the last 250 years. Okay? Okay. So, I like to start a class like this with a definition of terms, and also I want to go way back in history in this class. Um, 
to uh, uh, cover in broad strokes the Jewish story. So, we need a definition for what is Zionism. Anybody want to tell us their definition of what Zionism is? Because it's a political football, everybody. Support for a Jewish state. Support for a Jewish state? Uh huh. Yes, Nancy. I have a question. When was the term first used? The term was first used in approximately 1896 or 1897. Okay, so that started with Theodore Herzl. Yes. With um, his Congress, where he put forth that this would be a good idea. Uh, yes, we're going to be talking all about Herzl and the. Uh, the um, um, creation of the first World Zionist Congress in 1897. Uh, so what is Zionism? It's a made-up word, just like everything else is made up. Right? It's, it, yeah. it's the dream of Zion, the, 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 the will of the Jewish people to return to Zion. The will of the Jewish people and the dream of the Jewish people to return to Zion. So we're going to assume that people don't know, some people may not know anything about this in this class. So what is Zion? It's the land. It's the land? Israel. How, uh, and what's the origin of the term Zion? Anybody know? Zion is Jerusalem. Zion is a synonym for Jerusalem in the Bible. Why? Mount Zion? There's a place called Mount Zion. Mount Zion. If you go to Jerusalem, Mount Zion... First of all, if you haven't been to Jerusalem, these, these aren't mountains, everybody. They're more... Well, they're smaller than the Catskills. Um, so, but, just so you're not... Because when I was 12 years old, I made my first trip to Israel. It was 1968. And I'd grown up in Jewish day schools reading about the mountains. Of, and we're driving up, and I'm saying... Where are the mountains, Mom? You know, it's like, so. But they're still dramatic. They're steep and they're gorgeous. Um, Jerusalem is built on two mountains. Uh, one is uh, Mount Moriah, which is where the Temple Mount is. And then across the valley from it is Mount Zion. Uh, Mount Zion is uh, the um, uh, purported burial place of King David. Uh, and um, Zion became synonymous in biblical times with Jerusalem, and then by extension with the land of Israel, right? So Zion is a synonym for Israel, the, that place. Um, good. What, how else would you define Zionism? Well, it says in uh, the prophet, for out of Zion comes the Torah, and the word of God from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem. That shows the pairing of Jerusalem and Zion. It's all over the Bible, right? Um, but the term Zionism did not exist. Zionism did not exist until it was invented in the, the end of the 19th century, which is that's, uh, some, one of the things to understand about this. They were taking... A, a term that had long been Zion, which had long been associated with an equivalent to the land of Israel, and for some reason, I don't know why, decided Zionism was what their movement would be called. And so what is Zionism? Jewish nationalism. Jewish nationalism. That's a good, good translation. What is Zionism? Um, any others? 
So, Jewish self-determination in our ancestral homeland. That's its understanding. When we say Zionism, it's about Jewish self-determination in our ancestral homeland. Yes? Isn't it both a political and religious movement? It is not a religious movement. movement. Zionism was was a profoundly modern phenomenon. Nationalism was the new religion of the 19th century, right? Yeah. People got attached to their nation states, their flags, yeah. their armies, with religious fervor. Yeah. The 19th century was all about the displacement of the de- domination of the church as the focus of people's passion uh-huh. and allegiance to the attachment to nation states. Um, and, uh, and so that fervor was um, transferred to nation states. So, but it was not a religious movement. It was a secular, secular movement. movement. Uh, let me just say a little more about it. Think about that, everybody. Even in the 19th century, critics of nationalism were calling it the bane of human existence, right? Because people were dying for it just as they died for the cross or for Dar al-Islam before that, right? Uh, what is it with human beings? The answer to that question is, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, we're just going to keep trying to get our act together. That's all I can say. Can you, can you yeah. translate Dar al-Islam? Dar al-Islam. Well, in, before modern times, the world was defined by religious authority. So Christendom was the umbrella over the Christian world. Dar al-Islam was the umbrella over the Islamic world. Those two worlds were in constant conflict, put on your history caps, starting before the Crusades, over who controls the the world, right? And where is the fault line? The Middle East. You know, uh, in the, I mean, uh, how far did, let's see, the, there are Muslims in Bosnia, right? The, in the 1870s, the, the uh, I think it was the 1870s, the Ottoman Empire, which was Islamic, was on the, on the um, uh, outskirts of Vienna. Right, right. I think now 1600. 1600? Well, I don't know. Okay, all I know is that there's that all through the Middle Ages, there was a wavering control zone between uh, Christendom and Islam. And it went through Turkey, it went through the Balkans, sometimes extended all the way into Austria, and it certainly, Jerusalem was constantly uh, um, uh, in, contested. Think about Spain also. Oh, of course, it also went around to the Iberian Peninsula. This is important, thank you. So North Africa was Islamic. But the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, which is just, how far is it from 18 miles? It's a ferry crossing. It's a ferry crossing, right? From Africa to the southern tip of Spain at the, at the opening of the Mediterranean. And for hundreds of years, there was a battle between the forces of Christendom and of Islam over who would control the Iberian Peninsula. That ended in 1492 when Ferdinand and Isabella consolidated control of the entire, all of Spain, under the flag of Christianity. And they expelled the Muslims and the Jews. Jews. 
uh, we'll get to the Jews, because the Jews, we have not only an anomalous, but actually a unique position in, in, in European and Middle Eastern history, because we're neither this nor this, right? The Jews are the quintessential outsiders, the quintessential exiled, the quintessential displaced, the quintessential survivors. That's the role the Jews play in, in history. That means that Zionism, as a national movement, is not going to line up right with any other national liberation movement or revival movement. It just isn't. It will fit those characteristics, but the way it gets manifested is going to be unusual, and I would say actually unique. And I use the word unique, I try to use the word unique with care, because unique means singular, right? Unique's a word that's um, lost its mojo in English, and I try to use it accurately. So if I say that something about the Jews was unique, I mean, as best I can say, it was truly singular, not just special, okay? Uh, that's important to me, to, to make that distinction. Because we reflect on the strangeness of Jewish history. And it is strange. We are not, we are, as it says in the book of Esther, a people scattered among the nations. And therefore, our existence is um, sort of different than people who are living in one place for a long time or who have a sense of... Uh, 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 groundedness to that land and belonging. We're people who defined ourselves for almost 2,000 years as exiled from our land. Uh, okay, so. So the battle between Christians, Christendom and Islam. Come, essentially, that battle is still alive in the world. Right? We see the battle between East and West. We see that that's not a dead letter. Right? It's very alive. On the one hand, look at the, and look at the passions that inflame all the holy sites in Jerusalem. Right? And it has been overtaken by conflicts between nation states. Right? Uh, um, in the modern era, uh, beginning in the... Uh, at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, a slow, long process, long process for, think about post-World War II, when more nation states are uh, just cropping up everywhere as the British Empire crumbles, right? And then think about Palestinian nationalism. The Palestinian national movement doesn't emerge till the early 1960s, along with a number of other third world uh, nationalist movements. This is the way humanity thinks about and organizes itself in the modern era. Nation states. Okay. Um, oh, I'll bring, a, I, I'll bring you a great quote next time by Amos Oz. Amos Oz, the late wonderful author, Israeli activist and author. I have a quote of his from a book he wrote in the Land of Israel where he talks about um, he feels like an old man in kindergarten waving a flag. I know I have to. I know this is the way the world works, but boy, am I not really interested in this. It's a really beautiful quote. Uh -huh. uh, uh, I didn't bring it with me. I'll bring it next time. In the Land of Israel is the name of one of his books? Yes. Yes. 
he wrote a book called In the Land of Israel, oh, at least 30 years ago. It's, I bet it still stands up, actually, because uh, he wrote both fiction and nonfiction. Um, so the, the beginnings of nation states with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution in this country and the French Revolution in Europe is a process that is still emerging, even as a newer trends may be, may be overtaking it in the coming century. Uh, uh, interesting times we live in, aren't they? Uh, so, okay, back to Zionism. So Zionism is a term invented at the end of the 19th century to be the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. That's the definition that I found most useful. National liberation movement of the Jewish people. Now, um, in 1976, I think it was, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution defining, race, defining Zionism. They said, Zionism is racism. Okay. Yeah. That passed. Zionism is racism. That's what, so is Zionism the national liberation movement of the Jewish people or is Zionism racism? This is where if we don't also uh, wrap our minds around how anti-Semitism works in the world to scapegoat the Jews for the world's problems, we won't understand the incredible schizophrenia that exists and uh, unbelievable tension that exists around this word. Because Zionism also got labeled racism uh, in, in the United Nations. Now that resolution was rescinded about 10 or 11 years later. But uh, um, I just want to give you a sense of how contested the national liberation movement of the Jewish people is, right? We know it's contested, but it's not just contested uh, sort of uh, in some rational argument. It's contested with every fiber of political passion that people have. And so I want you to keep that in mind because it's part of the picture. Yes, Helen? I'm just confused how it could be defined as a national liberation movement of the Jews at the time it started, because there was no nation. Exactly. There now was. How is it a national the liberation movement. movement? How the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. Before there was a nation. I mean, that's right. Back, that's, that's, the, the that's the craziness of Zionism. Wrap your mind around this. <laughs> Theodor Herzl and an incredibly small minority of European Jews, incredibly small, a few thousand out of many millions, had this crazy idea that they could reconstitute a scattered people into a unified nation. Well, just one second. One of the mysteries of modern history is that they succeeded. Okay? If you believe in God, it's a miracle. If you're an agnostic, it's just unbelievable that it happened at all. Because the likelihood when they set this out of this happening, people, they were considered to be a laughingstock clowns, if not dangerous, 
and we're going to explain why so many Jews thought the Zionists were dangerous in promoting Jewish nationalism at a time when Jews had spent a century trying to gain acceptance into European nations, right? Yeah, it was a crazy idea. If you, if you love history, you've got to love this story. And I'm not saying that from what your political points of view are, right? If you love strange Ripley's Believe It or Not history stories, then this is the best one of the 20th century. Yeah, but that definition, was that the definition from the beginning? Yes. Or it became... No, that later. was the definition. definition. When Theodor Herzl convened, wrote a pamphlet called Judenstadt, the Jewish State, and then convened the first Zionist Congress in Basel in 1897 with 200 people from around Europe who were all on board, more or less. Um, uh, the goal was to create a Jewish national homeland and reconstitute the Jews as a nation state, a, a nation for the Jewish people. That was its explicit and um, crystal clear purpose. Okay, yes and yes. I, I just want to add, I don't think it was just the Jews uh, glomming onto other nationalisms. I think there was also in the non-Jewish world a sense of the Jewish problem that needed a solution. Oh, we're going to talk about all of that. So that, I think, was also, also pushing towards the Jewish... Oh, that's going to be a big part of our conversation. <laughs> Nancy. I was going to ask you, because if you consider that the first Congress was like the germination of the seed... Yeah. Like who, like, Theodore Herzl becomes identified with the founder of Zionism. Mm -hmm. Like, George Washington is the founder exactly. of this country. Right. Like, who got this idea? Because Theodore Herzl was living in a very, in, in a very sort of comfortable place. Right. Hold on, hold on to that because we're not ready for that yet. We're going to talk all about that, but not yet. Okay. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're still defining terms. Jane. In 76, um, UN passed the resolution that Zionism is racism. Yes. And then they rescinded it ten years after. Yes. Right. That's because the United Nations is a constantly changing body. There were many, many, many new... Uh, we'll talk about that, too. <laughs> yes? It reminds me of what Paul Hawken um, is doing with Drawdown. He said, if you don't declare an impossibility, like we're going to reverse global warming, then there's absolutely no chance of it coming to being. So you have to declare something that's out of the realm of human uh, comprehension, right. and then it can come into being. Right. Um, part of the mystery of Theodor Herzl, who we will talk about at length, is that he was captured by this idea like with a prophetic fervor. And for the next seven years of his life, he worked himself to death. He actually died of a heart attack at age 44 after working himself to death for seven years trying to make this idea a reality. And um, when, after the first Zionist Congress completed its uh, proceedings, he wrote in his diary, Today we founded the Jewish state. He said, it might not be in five years or in ten years, but in fifty years. And again, part of the mystery of this all is that exactly fifty years later, the United Nations voted to create partition Palestine and create a Jewish state. 
I'm telling you, if you don't believe in God, then just, and I'm not telling, I, 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 don't, have, I don't have God's ear. Um, so I'm not telling you believe in God. I'm saying if you don't believe in God, at least enjoy being amazed. Okay, because the story of the Jews in the, of Zionism and the Jews in the 20th century is an astounding story. Um, and we'll be talking about all of that along the way. Do you yeah. have a recommended book about the story of Theodore Herzl that come, comes Oh, goodness. I don't have a single recommendation. There are many biographies. There are, look for a short one. <laughs> there. Well, I just mean, I just, to prepare for this class, I reread The History of Zionism by Walter LeCur. Great book. More information than you would ever want to know. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Uh, LeCur, Walter LeCur, L-A-Q-U-E-R, or L-A-Q-U-E-U, anyway, Walter LeCur, and, um, L-A-C-Q-U-E-R, yeah, L-A-C-Q-U-E-R, um, he wrote it in 1972, and, um, it's good, it's good, but it's fat and boring, so, <laughs> Just keep that in mind. There must be there must be somewhat a more pared down versions of that will get you where you need to go. Yeah. One of the reasons for establishing a Jewish state would be to eliminate anti-Semitism because the way the Jews were before Herzl, they were small minorities all over Europe. Right. If the Jews have their own land, not in a Christian land, or not in a Muslim land there would be no more anti-Semitism. Okay, so there was a push and a pull. There was a push and a pull. Uh, and they were both equally important. One, the push was anti-Semitism, which we're going to discuss, uh, as, uh, but I'll say, this, I'll say this briefly. But it's important to get both of these ideas in mind, because Zionism was a revolutionary movement. A revolution wants to create a new human being and a new society. Right? Only, it would seem, with revolutionary fervor did these things get pulled off to whatever degree they get pulled off. At the same time, revolutionary movements tend to be um, uh, dialectic. They tend to say the old way is bad, the new way is good. And so they will throw, revolutionary movements will throw the baby out with the bathwater, and then it, uh, oh wait, that's too many metaphors. Revolutionary, <laughs> revolutionary movements will deny the past, but you can't deny the past, it will always come back and manifest itself, especially if you're trying to suppress it, right? And as we talk about the history of modern Israel, we'll see how, how that took place. But they wanted to create, a, 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 they figured if we can become a member of the family of nations, extract ourselves from our debased condition as communities without political power in exile, all over the world, and instead create a nation state in which we would be an equal footing with, because remember, the Jewish condition was anomalous. I was describing that to you. What if we can normalize our uh, relationship to the other nation states of the world by becoming our own nation state? That would be a solution to anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism said the most um, uh, hopeful, idealistic, would go away. Because one of the things that's going on in the 19th century, Zionism is not the only uh, uh, strategy that Jews have chosen to try to solve anti-Semitism. We're going to talk about that 
uh, today. Uh, they're all trying to solve anti-Semitism. They're tired of being oppressed and killed, and they're looking for solutions. Zionism was an idea for a solution that would eliminate anti-Semitism because the Jewish problem would be solved because we wouldn't be in your, we wouldn't be scattered communities in oppressed and oppressed minorities. We'd be our own people in our own land. But the other part of the Zionist revolution was that exile had infiltrated, the, the, the idea of exile, of powerlessness, had infiltrated the psyche of the Jew also. And the Zionists wanted to create a new Jew who controlled their own means of production, who worked with their hands, who could be proud and stand up tall, who didn't have to uh, uh, walk with their head bowed and looking over their shoulders all the time. So the goal was to create a new Jew so that the anti-Semitism that Jews had internalized, the powerlessness, the debased sense of being debased, would be eliminated and create a Jewish state that would also handle the external, what they were looking for, the external cause of Jew hatred by extracting themselves and putting themselves in their own land. Yes, it was, a, it was an attempt to solve what was called the Jewish problem. Okay. Everybody ever hear that term before? Yes. Okay. Think about it for a minute. Think yeah. of, huh? The way I think about it is as a hate towards the Jewish people. I mean, right. The Jewish problem is used by anti-Semitic, as an anti-Semitic trope. It's or not, just non-Jews. Well, not in the 19th century. Right. So in the 19th century, the Jewish problem was embraced by European Christians and Jews alike. <laughs> and the issue was, what do we do with, the, with these Jews? They're a problem. Why were they a problem to the Christians? Okay, good. We're going to talk about that now. Yes? It reminds me of the Exodus story of how they were going to create a new Jew before they were ready to establish. Isn't that fascinating that in order to get the, after they left Egypt, they weren't ready to enter the promised land, according to the biblical story, until the generation who had been born in slavery had passed away. So they wandered for 40 years so that Jews who hadn't been born in slavery would be able to enter the promised land. It's the same idea. And uh, the rabbis said, you can, take, um, you can take Egypt, you can take the Jews out of Egypt, but can you take Egypt out of the Jews? Right? And that is a deep question about our personal paths towards liberation and transformation. Daisy? Is this go on only amongst uh, European Jews? Yes, Zionism was a European movement. And we're going to discuss how the Jews who lived in non-European countries were integrated better or worse into the Zionist experiment, but we're not going to get to that. This was a European movement. Because it was a European movement, it was exclusively a European movement. And because it was a European movement, it carried with it all the hallmarks of European uh, uh, thought, including that we are the white knight who will show the light to the rest of the world, right? So colonialism, racism, unconsciously uh, triumphalism of European society, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire, right, which uh, um, becomes part of the 
uh, unevaluated aspects of the Zionist movement who, except for some very, very brilliant thinkers like Achad Ha'am, didn't recognize the, um, uh, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for when you think you're better than everybody else? Uh, whatever, elitism. elitism of the movement. Um, it's also, so it was a European movement. The Jews who lived in other countries came to the state of Israel in large numbers after the foundation of the state. The core who came there before the state came voluntarily, almost exclusively from Europe, some from the United States. Okay, there was another hand. It's Nancy. No, I was just going to say that even in its most benign, when you, you know, the anti-Semitism runs the gamut from pogrom to, but in its most benign, it's really just a question of being other. They were, Jews were always other, even when they were accepted. And Israel was the only place where you're not an other. So, for example, Theodore Herzl came from a place where Jews were very assimilated. Right. But still the when we, as we go through this history, we are going to have to distinguish between Eastern European Jews and Western European Jews. Because in the course of the 19th century, Western European Jews, bit by bit, were accepted as full members of their nations. But they were still other. But they were still other. That was Theodor Herzl's uh, gestalt. Eastern European Jews under the Russian uh, Empire uh, were, were still living in essentially in, in, in serf feudal conditions. Um, uh, nationalism didn't, uh, didn't, su- didn't succeed in uh, Russia until 1917 when it was overtaken almost immediately by communism, right? Uh, and uh, the Jewish state in condition in Eastern Europe was uh, they were um, constantly under threat of being killed, of being forcibly drafted. They were starving. Um, they, uh, it was a bitter, bitter existence. They didn't have legal rights. Uh, this was the condition in Eastern Europe. The founders of Zionism, the Western European thinkers who founded Zionism, knew that most Western European Jews would not uproot themselves and move to Palestine. However, uh, the Eastern European Jews were fleeing for their lives. Three million, between 1880 and 1920, Jews out of a population, you know, like it's almost half of the Jews of Russia and Poland left during those years, just like we're seeing people pouring in from Guatemala and El Salvador. They, they're running for their lives. Okay? Why else would you leave home? The only other reason you leave home is if you are ideologically driven, which meant that of those three million, this is a great statistic. Uh, guess how many of those three million in that 30, 40 years uh, went to Palestine? 30,000. Okay? One percent. One out of a hundred was ideologically pulled to the land of Israel. Palestine was, 
was a backwater, a malarial swamp. It was, um, it was impoverished. It was part of the Ottoman Empire, which was uh, uh, sclerotic. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a very interesting story about this little kernel of, of crazy ideologues who wanted to create a new, Jew, a new Jewish reality. Everybody else was just trying to save their skins, and I don't blame them. But keep that in mind. We'll be talking more about that. Did you want to add something, Arnie? Oh, oh, oh. I was just thinking, my grandparents left Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe to Argentina in the 20s. After, the reason they went to Argentina, if you recall, is that in 1924, the immigration doors were shut here, shut hard. So, my grandparents got here in 1923, here. Right, so they went to Argentina in 1928, about most Argentinian Jews came in that time. And actually my mother's, um, my mother's grandfather went to Israel first, to Palestine. Yes. In the in early 20s, thinking that he was going to move the family from Poland, from Warsaw, to, to Israel. And because he was a Zionist. Right. But he couldn't survive. There right. was nothing to eat. The there was nothing thing to was that he ate um, olives. He survived on olives while he was there. That was it. There was nothing to eat. And he had a pretty good life in Poland. They had a factory, a small factory. But they saw, I think they saw coming what was coming. And they, I think it was also economic. And, and they went to Argentina. And my right. grandparents, the same from a Bialystok area. There were many Zionists in Europe by the 1920s who were part of Zionist youth groups who, you remember, anti-Semitism was horrific, especially in Eastern Europe. And uh, it, we, we tend to forget uh, what a pogrom was, you know, uh, what state-sponsored terrorism was, uh, you know, where, where hundreds or thousands of people would be killed in state-sponsored mob attacks, right? Um, so there were many Zionist youth groups people were looking for solutions many many of those Zionists who then made their way to Palestine didn't stay they either went back to Poland or they came to the United States or to Argentina because it was so hard again the creation of the state of Israel was anything but a given it's one of the remarkable occurrences, accidents, creations of modern history, the fact that it went this way. I think it's safe to argue that, of course, had it not been then for the final solution in Europe of the Jewish problem, uh, Israel wouldn't have been founded uh, because it seems that there was a sort of a paroxysm of sympathy uh, that just squeaked by the vote to create a Jewish state in 1948 given that one in three Jews had been murdered uh, uh, earlier in that decade. What a, what a century. You know, this is an aside, but it's an important aside for me. I, I, still, I still kind of can't believe that I grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust with this incredibly sunny American disposition and feeling like that we're marching towards a brighter, better future. It's like when you look at the 20th century and the technologicalization of war, um, 
Uh, and the fact that more people died in that century than in all, I think the statistic is than all the wars previous in human history. It's like, how did we get so optimistic? It kind of blows me away. Well, I, I know my father, who lived through it here, he yeah. was born here, said that, I mean, they didn't know what was going on exactly, and they felt pretty, and he actually felt superior to some of the immigrants, he said, the American-born. Oh, uh, so well put. I think mm -hmm. it's just not, it wasn't immediate, so you hear about it, but it's not... Right, maybe, and it's, the war didn't touch our shores, and it's something also about the American um, uh, worldview. Yeah, yeah, of the march to progress, yeah. I just wanted to say that it's very different for the children of survivors. I'm sure there's someone else like myself. Mm -hmm. Completely different, because only now can I reflect that when I was born, they had just come out of literally hell, you know, where their, my mother's father was murdered and shot, you know. So, and that definitely was a different kind of march. I see it in myself because that it was, it was right with the shadow was pretty large because mm -hmm. it was right there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So now a, a, a little more on definition of terms. So we we've talked about Zion and Zionism, where the term comes from. So let's talk about Israel, Judea, and Palestine. I think that's important that we understand historically the origin of these of these terms. So, in ancient times, starting at the latest, about 1000 BCE, a, uh, a group called the Israelites, who were made up of a collection of tribes, of, of, of a kinship tribes, unified and created a kingdom with Jerusalem as its capital in about the year 1000 BC. That kingdom rapidly split. King David is considered to be the founder of the dynasty. We don't have historical evidence of a King David. And on the other hand, why wouldn't someone have, somebody founded it? <laughs> we know there was a monarchy and a dynasty, so let's assume it was David. Uh, his son Solomon, was the next king who built the first temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem was the focal point of Jewish spiritual and political life. Ju yes? When did it start being called the city of David? Ir David, very early. Very early. Yeah, because David is the one who captured it and conquered it. It belonged to a tribe called the Jebusites. Um, so City of David is definitely a, um, another name for Jerusalem. Again, with the incredible ironies of hum, human, human existence, Yerushalayim means City of Peace. So we dream about it, and then we fight about it. Uh, and uh, the, under Solomon, the monarchy after he died, the monarchy fractured. And there were two kingdoms side by side. When I say kingdoms, we're talking about, you know, Rhode Island, maybe, right? These are small places. This is old time. Is a, is a, what's the difference between a king, a chieftain, and a warlord? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Okay. So it all depends who's doing the talking, just like freedom fighters and terrorists. It's the same old story. 
Okay? So, um, it splits into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which is north of Jerusalem and centered on the northern part of what is today called the West Bank, is called Israel. And the southern kingdom, which is the, tribe, the, the area of the tribe of Judah, who is one of the 12 tribes, is called Judea. So Israel and Judah, or Judea. Judea in Hebrew is Yehuda. Um, and uh, in time, over the next centuries, the northern kingdom disappears. It's conquered. It's never we lose, and only the southern kingdom survives, known as the kingdom of Judah. Even though the name Israel is still extant, we are the children of Israel. The Bible calls us Israel. Our ancestor is Jacob, who's also Israel. But our physical our physical holding is Judah, with Jerusalem as its capital. Even after we're exiled by the Babylonians and the kingdom of Judah is destroyed and the monarchy of King David ends, we are, we, in one of the, again, one of the unusual, even unique parts of Jewish history, rather than assimilate into the larger, at that time, uh, Babylonian Empire, we retain our longing for Jerusalem and Judah. And the Psalms and Jeremiah and the Book of Lamentations all are contemporaneous evidence that we were longing for our homeland. When Ezekiel says, by the, when the psalm says in 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept as we remembered Zion. <clears throat> if I forget, the next line is, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. That's from about 500 and something BCE. So, it needs to be stated, I'm afraid, that one of the current so-called debates in the world these days is whether the Jews have an historical connection to the land of Israel and to Jerusalem. It's so absurd on its face, it's like Holocaust denial. And, can, and um, I don't know what to say. There are many, 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 many people who have bought the line that the Jews have no historical connection to the land of Israel. Okay, that's not an opinion of mine. I'm telling you historical fact. Um, so, oddly, we have been longing for Zion and Jerusalem for at least 2,500 years. After about 100 years in exile, some Jews return and reestablish the province of Judea. And uh, that's called the Second Temple Period because they rebuild the temple. Uh, over the next centuries, the Babylonians are replaced by the Persians. The Persians are overtaken by Alexander the Great and the Greeks, uh, the Greek and Hellenistic civilization. The Hellenistic civilization is overtaken by the Roman Empire. And the Jews are this little group, this little province, essentially, of Judea. It, which is Jerusalem and its environs uh, that persist. Meanwhile, many Jewish communities have been established outside of Judea. The Babylonian Jewish community. You, I think it's important that we tell this history, even though it's, it, it, I think it's context. The Babylonian Jewish community, which eventually became the Persian and Iraqi Jewish communities, actually traced themselves back 
to 500 BCE. They were a continuous Jewish presence in what is present-day Iraq and present-day Persia for 2,500 years. Only in the last 50 years have these communities been dismantled and uh, uh, have they become refugees and relocated both to the land of Israel and to Great Neck. <laughs> and Beverly Hills, right. Englewood, yeah. Um, and once again, when we get to this modern era, most of the Iraqi and Persian Jews who had any means went to England, France, or the United States. Who wanted to go to Israel? Unless you were a crazy Zionist, right? Unless you had this dream, uh, right? Not everyone shared the dream. Certainly not, because it was a European movement, certainly not most Jews of the Middle East and the Levant. Okay, that's, a good, that's an important aside. But there were also Jewish communities in Carthage, in Rome, in Tarshish, in, Tur- in, sub- in uh, what do you call it, uh, Asia Minor, in all over, all over. Um, and the province was known as the province of Judea, and the people who lived there were known as Judeans, Yehudim, Yehudim, which is what Jew is in Hebrew still to this day. Of the Jew, the Yehudim means Jew and Judean. Yes. So between the establishment of Judea after Solomon and the Babylonian exile, well, I mean after the Babylonian exile, there was nothing there. No, no, the Jews returned, but they weren't no, in. Was there? A break when they were oh, there, it, was a, it was a province of the Persian Empire. Think about the Book of Esther. Uh, King Ahasuerus has 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Mihodu Adkush. It was one of those 127 provinces. So, the, okay, so no autonomy. And... Right. You paid your taxes and you got to run your own affairs and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, under, the, under the Maccabees during that period, the Jews managed to throw off the Greek rule and reestablish an independent kingdom for close to 100 years. That was in the 167 BCE. And then once again that fell and it became a province of Rome because Rome had overtaken the, the Seleucids and blah, blah, blah. And uh, there's, this, uh, saying, there's this passage in the Haggadah, the Passover Haggadah, that says, V'hisha amda lavotenu v'lanu. Look how God has like rescued us for every... Na- Empire after empire has risen up, uh, yeah, no, and, and we're still here. You know, part of Jewish history, when you immerse yourself in it, in the big picture, is to recognize that it's not the story of the victors. Right? Part of the Jewish bearing witness in the world for me, and this will of course pertain to my politics today about present-day Israel, is not to be seduced by state or military power, right? Because we're not here because we embraced that. We didn't have the option. We had to embrace something else. Memory, history, and hope for the future that sustained us. And that is a whole other beautiful line of reflection to think about when you're a Jew. Um, What does it mean? What are Jews witness to? And what are we supposed to be witness to? by our continuing presence in history as not the victors? Right? That's a big and good question. Yes, Helen? I think that what you were saying was <coughs> it was the exile 
Yeah, Did what, that what? mean there was a break in the Jewish uh, occupation? Yes, there no, was. But, but yeah. Jews remained. They didn't all get exiled. Only the leadership was right, exiled. So they were not all exiled. They were not. Oh, no, 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 no. The empire was smart. They just wanted to take away the ruling class. That way they could subdue and, and control the local population. And the ruling class was deported, right? Uh, when the ruling class returned, when you study Jewish history, it's a fascinating episode in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They found that the Jews had intermarried with the local Samaritans and like it was a total mess. And how are we going to. So it's a whole other interesting episode of Jewish history. Uh, uh, interesting and troubling and all kinds of things. And it was impoverished. But let, and uh, poverty, yeah, absolutely. It was a broken down city that got rebuilt. Uh, okay, so. The word Jew comes via the Latin Judea, the German Jude. That, that J turns into a Y, turns into a J in English or French, Juif, Jew. Judea. Hmm? Judea in Spanish. In Spanish, Judea. Okay, so we get our name Jews from our ancestral homeland. Uh, even as we transformed over the centuries from a national land-based group into a fundamentally religious and far-flung kinship group who never stopped remembering their ancestral homeland. That's why, for example, our synagogue is oriented towards the east because for literally thousands of years, Jews who are not in Judea, in Jerusalem, face that way during prayer. Um, and at the end of the Passover Seder, we say next year in Jerusalem. That's how we remembered it. That's how it became ritualized as sort of sacred memory, which is different than history, right? Um, okay, so the Jews, who were scattered all over the Roman Empire, in addition to being in Judea, where their temple was and their power base was, they had communities all over the Roman Empire. They were actively proselytizing at the time. I, we're not doing a story about that, so I won't, I'll go on from there. For the Romans, the Jews were a problem because they were a fifth column. There were a lot of people turning their eyes towards Jerusalem and not towards Rome. Uh, as long as the Jews uh, in, uh, paid their taxes towards Rome, think of what um, uh, Jesus said that's also, you can hear in the other rabbinic comments, render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's and unto God's that which is God. You had to send your shekels every year for the upkeep of the temple and you had to pay your taxes to the empire. Right? Uh, but eventually the, uh, the Jews rebelled all over the Roman Empire. Big rebellion. The Romans crushed it. The year was 70 in the first century. They destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and they destroyed Jerusalem and uh, uh, it was a calamity like the Holocaust for the Jews. The Jews continued to rebel there were rebellions for the next 60 years uh, against the Romans. 
they were constantly being squashed. Finally, after the rebellion of Bar Kokhba in 132, um, the Romans decided they had enough. I think the emperor was Hadrian, wasn't it? Uh, Hadrian determined that Jerusalem would be leveled. A new city was built on its site called Aelia Capitolina, and Judea would be renamed. What to name it? Well, in ancient times, there was a seafaring people known as the Philistines. And so they named it Palestina. Okay? They took a historical marker from the ancient past. The Philistines were coastal people. Like Lebanon. Lebanon and the coast. No, down to Gaza. But the, uh, uh, Judea was in the, was in the hills. Right? Judea wasn't on the coastal plain. Uh, so the, they wanted to erase Judea from the map because think about the power it held in the Jewish imagination. Erase it. That's what good, good empires do. <laughs> right? You want to control your population. You do what you need to do. And that's where the name Palestine comes from. Since the, first, since the second century, that has been, the, the Byzantine Empire inherited that name. It was from the um, uh, Roman Empire. And henceforth, when the Islamic Revolution happened and they took over that area, it became Palestine. And so since the second century, the name Palestine has been one of the names of what we call the land of Israel, had been called Judea, and we also call Zion. Okay? I think that's very important for people to understand where the names even come from. Uh, by the time of the 18th century, Palestine was part of Syria, known as Syria-Palestine, which was one of the um, administrative districts of the Ottoman Empire, which was based in Constantinople. And, uh, and so that's where the name Palestine comes from. Um, okay, I wanted to tell you all that. All right, so, yes, Michael. Where's the name Yeshurun? Ah. Yeshurun. Yeshurun is a name in the Torah which is a synonym for Israel and is referred to biblically. I don't know where it comes from, but it's clearly one of the names uh, connected to Yisrael. It might be because Yashar and Yisrael, it might be the letters. We don't know the origin. However, there is a synagogue in Jerusalem called the Yeshurun Synagogue, uh, where my father was bar mitzvah, by the way. In, <laughs> and that's another story that I'm going to tell in a, at, once we, in a future class. I'm, uh, my, my, my father's side of the family were, were, were were um, passionate Zionists who moved in 1920 to Palestine. And I think if I tell their story, I'm also going to put a slideshow together. I think once we have a lot of sort of concepts, it, be, I think it would be worthwhile to hear a story. Um, it's a very interesting story. I'm learning more about them recently because uh, we'll do get to another time. Yeah? Before you leave the names thing, yeah. Jews living in... 
Israel prior to 1948 were called Palestinians. Right. And the Jerusalem Post before 1948 was the Palestine Post. That's correct. So <laughs> there were no Arab Palestinians prior to 1948. They were Jews. They were all Palestinians. And, and then when Jews became Israelis, that name became vacant. That's right. That's right. The name was vacated and then was adopted shortly thereafter by the Palestinian Arabs. Well, Arab became a new concept. Nasser invented the concept of Arab, like this unity of Arab. Um, the, didn't, he didn't create the concept of Arabs, but he did. Uh, so Nasser in the 50s was also part of this new secular nationalist reordering of who we are. And he aspired to create a greater Arab nationality. Yes, he did. Yeah. yeah. So remember how fungible, how utterly malleable nationalities are. We've all been alive long enough. Think about the map of the former Soviet Union. Hmm. Right? Think about the map you grew up with of the USSR. And now think about the map now. It's like, it's totally changeable. Borders, think about Yugoslavia in the map you grew up with, and think about what's there now. Yeah. Serbia, Macedonia, Montenegro. And it, it's like, so nationalism is not a, it's not a fixed thing. It's constantly morphing. It's so important to grasp that, everybody, because, again, the maps I grew up with when I was in school become my map of reality. And then as I get older, I realize, oh, wait a minute. That map's not even real anymore. What are boundaries? What are nation states? Just keep that in mind. We have to stay really fluid about this. Um, yes and yes. I, I want to be, Would you remind me your name again? I'm Carrie. Carrie. Um, I want to say this. This is a, just a personal thing, but I think it, you just, I realized it as you said something that enlightened this concept for me. You know, people are just throwing it. You know, if they're against Israel or they're arguing with you, like, what are you, a religion or a nation? Like, they're always like, you know, you're, you're just a religion. But it was actually historically interchangeable. I mean, first there was a kinship group, then there was King David, and it was a nation. And then they went to Babylon. That's when they said the Amida came about as a substitute for the temple. So the center of our religion was as a substitute for the nation. So it's, it's actually a totally intertwined concept. I That's right. So I just want to our, again, the Jewish... The Jewish situation is anomalous. Are we a religion? Yes. Are we a nation? Yes. Are we a people? Yes. Are we a culture? Cultures? Yes, yes. Um, what is a Jew? This becomes the key question for 19th century European Jews. So I'm glad you mentioned it because we're turning our attention to that. Gail? Um, I'm very struck at the idea that Zionism was really a Western European concept. Yes, it was. Because it's really only in Western Europe that we really had a, a real sense of nation. Because those countries had been around for a long time. They were relatively homogenous in population. Relatively. Relatively. And they had a national identity. Okay. They had a national identity right. that, was, that was able to be molded right. into. As soon as you leave Western Europe in that era or later into, mm -hmm. the, into the 20th century, the national boundaries had either been drawn by colonial powers and had nothing to do with actual identity of the people, 
Um, and that's why they're still so moving around. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what you have much more are tribal identities. Mm -hmm. So the national notion, and I never realized this before, is so dependent upon it having come from Western Europeans into Judaism. Yes, yes, I think yes. that's a fair thing to say. Let me say a little more about that. Um, first of all, it's not just outside of Europe. In Eastern Europe, you could be a Polish person living in what seemed to be Lithuania right. one year right. and going to a Polish school, but the next year it's something else. And so there were, there were nascent nationalities and language groups in Eastern Europe, but it was unbelievably confusing. You know, are you going to send your kid to the Russian language school, to the Polish language school, to the Yiddish-speaking school, to the Hebrew school, to the uh, Lithuanian nascent uh, national? It's like unbelievably mixed up in Eastern Europe, less so in Western Europe. However, remember that even though France in 1789, you know, de uh, became the nation of France, uh, Italy didn't unite until 1861. Germany didn't unite as a nation until 1871. So even that was constantly in flux. Belgium, 1830. Um, it's so, but you're right, it was more established there in Western Europe than anywhere else. Uh, Esther and then Arnie. I have a story about my grandfather. Talk loud. I have a story about my grandfather. My grandfather lived in Skopje, which at that time was Yugoslavia, now it's Macedonia. He, um, in his house, had a big attic and a collection of flags. And whoever was in the kingdom, the flag went out. Could you hear what she said? He had a collection of flags, so he knew which, who was in charge. He put that flag out. That is a perfect story. Right. That's a perfect story. Arnie? Uh, just Central Europe would, would be a more accurate term because Germany, Austria, Austro-Hungarian Empire mm -hmm. politically would be more Central Europe. Central Europe. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's important. Okay. So, we're doing good. The Jewish people prior to the advent of modernity, the advent of nation states, and the idea that uh, individuals could be something called a citizen. Right? That's a modern idea. Mm. Your rights prior to that were at the, um, at the uh, whim of the boss, whoever the big cheese was. Right? right? Until then, this idea, which was such an advance in human history. See, nationalism is not just a negative. This idea that individuals have inalienable rights is one of the glories of the modern era. Um, and uh, prior to that... Hmm? But not for everybody. Well, that's the underbelly of it. <laughs> right. That's the underbelly of it. Uh, uh, but, but we'd be mistaken not to understand the advance in our, in our sense of what human beings should be able to do with their lives uh, with the advent of modernity. Right. It's an amazing, amazing idea. Uh, prior to that, if you were a Jew, it's because you were part of the Jewish community. Right? It wasn't because... Well, I'm a Jew. That's my identity. 
This is a completely modern thing. You didn't think about it. It wasn't on the screen. You were a Jew because you were part of the Jewish community. If you didn't want to be part of the Jewish community anymore, what were your options? Convert. That was your option. That was the umbrella. That was it. The idea that we get to construct our identities, pick and choose, to make determinations is a completely modern idea, which is both glorious and maddening, right? <coughs> Especially for the Jews. Now let me explain why. Prior to this advent of modernity, the Jewish community was tolerated as a community based on the largesse or need of the ruler. The Jewish community, whoever their leader was, who would rise up basically, usually based on wealth and influence, would negotiate a charter with whoever the duchy or the principality or the king or the this was in order to allow them to live there. The terms of the charter were very clear. The Jews were restricted from living in many places. They were restricted from many professions. They were restricted in all kinds of ways. They had to wear special symbols. They had to wear funny badges or hats. They had to, you know, depending on where you go in the Middle Ages, it's like, but the theme is consistent. There were better times and worse times. There were nicer popes and meaner popes. There were, um, but what we're talking about is a time prior to the idea of both individual rights and uh, 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 any of that stuff. Um, part of the story of anti-Semitism, and this is important to talk about now, is that what, remember, Europe by the 18th century was the inheritor of, of Christendom. Christian doctrine developed such that the Jews were responsible for killing our Lord and Savior. And therefore, they should remain in a debased condition until they see the light and convert. And convert right? Um, they weren't, there, would, there were mass murders, there were even some exterminations, but there was no idea until the modern era except with the exception of the Spanish Inquisition. There was, there was uh, no idea that a Jew couldn't solve being Jewish, as far as the Christians were concerned, by becoming Christian. Right? In the meantime, if they persisted in being Jewish, then they were there for a reason, to bear witness in their degraded condition to what happens when you don't accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when you, take, when you killed our Lord. Make sense, everybody? Does that make sense? The Jews, okay, there were Jewish communities scattered all over Europe. Uh, and they were tolerated sometimes and sometimes not tolerated by the local, by, by the local uh, authorities. And, and uh, the rationale that Christianity developed to prove that they were right was that the Jews were wrong. Right? That, Christianity and Judaism were siblings in the first century. 
The first Christians were Jews. The first Christians were Jews. They were all Jews. And it was an internal debate amongst the Jewish community about whether Jesus was a Messiah or not. Right? It was, a, it was an internal conflict, uh, you know, who's right? To make a long story very short, as Christianity extended its reach beyond the Jewish community, it became its own religion called Christianity. And as it consolidated eventually imperial power and became the Holy Roman Empire, it by that point had consolidated political power. Its enemy was the Jews. So it could have wiped out the Jews, but that's not how things worked back then. Um, it tolerated the Jews because they were useful to the Christian world. <clears throat> how were they useful? Money lenders. Two ways. Yeah. I'm going with the religious first. You could blame them for all your problems. Right? The fundamental dynamic of anti-Semitism is scapegoating. Fundamental. Wow, how convenient to have a bunch of politically powerless people who you can blame for anything. Okay? Do you get it? It's really convenient. Think about a schoolyard. Right? Just think about it. Think about the poor schmo who gets, you know, who's constantly picked on. It's like it's really that is the, if I'm going to oversimplify in a helpful way, that's anti-Semitism. Now, what did you want, uh, uh, Marka? I just want to say I was recently, I don't know if you heard that article, that thing I sent you, but it was about, it just blew my mind because it was saying how in the New Testament, I don't know if you've read from, from this time of year, but around Easter and everything, there's so much derogatory language against right. Jews, even though the Romans are really the enemy at that moment, and they're throwing out <clears throat> Jews and Christ, you know, so, so even just so systemically that it's written in that text as a scapegoat. Right, we have real problems. The Gospels, the Gospels especially some of them, mm -hmm. uh, explicitly say that the Jews killed Jesus. Right. And every year at Easter, in the Passion of Holy Week, those are the words read aloud in, and in, in churches for thousands of years all over the world. The Jews killed Jesus. So I'm sure you probably know that around Easter, Jews would lock their doors, bar their windows, and hope that no marauding Christian crowds came in, uh, you know, um, inflamed by the passion of Christ to kill them for killing our Lord. Right? So, uh, that's important to say. It's like part of Christian scripture. There are contemporary colleagues of mine, many, many, who are trying to overturn that paradigm. It's challenging. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Christianity didn't develop until after the death of Christ. Right. Then everybody was Jewish. So how do you know logically? This isn't logical, Ruth. Okay. <laughs> this so is not logical. The Gospels are written in, say, the second century or the late first century, and the, um, a, the, uh, the early Christians at this point have identified themselves separate from the Jews and are blaming the Jews. Okay. 
Okay, it's, that's how it works. These aren't contemporaneous accounts. They're not historical accounts. Right. They're, because okay. everybody's the same at the time of death. Everybody's the same, and the real enemies are the Roman Empire. There's no question about it from what we know historically. Um, but there was a lot of internal infighting among the Jews under Roman occupation, and uh, they certainly, different Jews would turn in other Jews to the authorities. It happened all the time, right? It's like... We're talking history here and how people behave. Uh, you want to add something? I just have a question about that because when it does seem like the Romans, you know, are the obvious antagonists. So what what is this? Is this like playing into the hegemony of Rome that they don't become the the villains that Jews become the villains? I don't know. It's just strange. It's it's strange, and I also uh, I don't want to make just some facile comment about it because because yeah. it's not. I'd have to study it more. Yeah. Arnie, you want to add something? All those comments are interesting and appropriate, but the Jews are necessary for Christianity because as part of the Christian story, the second coming cannot occur until the Jews are converted. So the Jews have to be around for the second coming. That's crucial. Well, otherwise, that's, that's, the, that's why. That's why. The Christians could have wiped out the Jews years ago, but we're part of the story. And if we ain't around, Christ will not come back because there will be no Jews to convert. Um, Arnie, thank you. That's, I was, hold on, hold on. I really thank Arnie because I was missing that piece. And that's crucial. Again, a little detour. Why are Christian evangelicals today so interested in Israel? It's because they are hoping that the final conflict will arise and uh, uh, the Christ will return. The medieval and Jewish communities were frequently at the right around the neighborhood of the cathedral because they understood that the, the bishop, the archbishop, knew this concept and it was his duty to protect them. Right. And in many cases, he did. This is another fascinating thing. It was the church who frequently protected the local Jewish population from the local Jewish population. Uh, so, but when if you want to understand. Christian evangelical support for Israel, uh, which comes right along with it, incredible anti-Muslim, uh, like, like fervor. Um, it's precisely because they are living inside this mythic story, and you know, be careful who you who you make friends with, because we are we Jews. Even though we're getting a lot of support from the evangelicals. We Jews are bit players in their cosmic drama. They do not have our interests at heart. Okay, and this goes back to exactly what Arnie was saying. Does that make sense, everybody? Good, that's important to understand. Helen. I'm thinking that um, maybe the reason that at that time, in the first century, they didn't blame the Romans what there's an analogy later on when the Protestants and the, the they call it a schism I guess yeah so there was a schism amongst the Jews at that time they, they yes were, they it was were a, not really looking at the Romans they were looking at their idea of that's the right that's right in the and first so century this was an this was Romans. an internal schism right which, yes which was later on there was one in the in Kabbalah in Christianity between the Catholics and the Protestants, which led to the same kind of violence. Uh, yes, yes, and the them. intense hatred of Catholics, yes. Uh, thank you, that's a good point. I Steve? Also, I also wonder if the Gospels were written in the first century. Late and first century. late first century. 
that the Romans were in charge. To have in the text that the Romans were to blame might have been as politically... Right, that's well, such a great thing. To that's say. a great point. Did you all hear what he said? Yeah. Um, that uh, because we, I've never, you know, Steve, I don't know why, but I've never really thought about that. But we know that the rabbis self-censored prayers with euphemisms so that they wouldn't anger the Roman authorities. And we know this from studying the history of the Jewish liturgy. So why wouldn't that also be the case? Good point. Okay, so now to Bob's point. So you have, so in Christian theology, the Jews have to be there, they have to be blamed, they have to remain as a remnant. Uh, so that Christian uh, triumphalist, triumphalist theology can be ultimately fulfilled. Meanwhile, the Jews also have economic utility throughout all of these places. Remember, if you want to blame somebody, uh, then um, you've got somebody that everybody already wants to blame. You're reading about them, about the money changers in the temple courtyard, right? And uh, you also have adopted the biblical uh, prohibition against lending to a fellow co-religionist at interest. But the Bible's clear. You can lend an interest to someone who's not of your community. So the Jews can fill a niche as moneylenders and bankers in medieval Europe. And uh, it's perfect for the rulers because for a variety of reasons. First of all, the Jews are good at moving capital. We're the first capitalists. <coughs> We're literate. We have networks all around Europe with other Jewish communities. There's all kinds of reasons. And we can lend it interest. And so if I want to go to war, I'm, I'm Prince somebody, I can have my war funded by the Jewish bankers. They have to. Because what's going to happen if they don't? Expel them. I hold their charter. So they have power, but they don't have power. Because then, if I default on my debt, and they come to me saying, you know, how about it? Well, I say, eh, screw you, and I expel them. So the Jews could survive in, Jewish, in European communities by being the capitalists, but they actually had no real power. However, even more conveniently, if they were the, the money lenders and the tax collectors, then as soon as the population got restive, just point that finger, right? It's obviously the Jews who are taking all your money. And any stereotypes you have know about that are absolutely pervasive. I mean, the word to Jew, somebody down, is in the dictionary. Many people still use it in Hurley. And, you know, it's like, it's just part of their vocabulary. To Jew someone down. Right, you're familiar with that. You were in rural Connecticut <laughs> when you were all... That's, right? It was said to me. Huh? It was said I know to it was me. said to you. Hold on a minute. Um, that simple English language with a lowercase j, which is related, by the way, to, I've learned in recent years, to jip, which comes from gypsies, oh. and Indian giver, which comes from Native Americans. Uh, um, I have to... You know, I'm always working on updating my vocabulary. <laughs> uh, okay, so 
so the Jews um, were the ready scapegoat to protect the owning classes, even, if we're going to get into our class, our, our sort of class revolution stuff. Um, and so all the stereotypes about Jewish bankers uh, that uh, Trump trotted out in his uh, campaign ads, um, uh, all that stuff is just... Oh, think of any poster from the Nazi era that you've seen of a hook-nosed Jew sitting on a bag of money. It all comes from these medieval... Uh, 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 stereotypes and uh, beliefs. But again, just keep in mind, the utility of the Jews amongst, in, the, in Christian Europe is that you can blame them for anything. That's very useful, right? Okay, what did you want to say, Roberta? When that's been said to me, I just look the person in the eye and say, it's not a verb. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, we all have to, we all encounter it in different ways. Thank you. Yes? Uh, Only because you mentioned that it was very useful in medieval Europe, it's very useful in the dialogue today with the Palestinians because you just we just heard it recently about it all being about the Benjamins and uh, there's... Right. When we talk about dog whistle, anti-Semitic dog whistles and anti-Semitic tropes, when somebody knowingly or unknowingly says something like that because it's part of the water they swim in, that's anti-Semitic because of that incredible history that we're describing today. Okay, Arnie, you wanted to add something? Uh, just a word about the money changers in the, in the temple courtyard. That, that's, that's an important thing. There were money changers in the temple courtyard, and we have this in, in, in the New Testament by Christ still turning the table. It was very important to have those people because coinage bared the... Um, Hold on one second, Arnie. Arnie's back in the first century BCE uh, when we when the, the Gospels talk about the money changers. The money changers, the money changers had an important function in the functioning of the rituals of the temple. So the coinage had the emperor's um, effigy or replica on it. No, you could not buy a paschal. That would be very unkosher to, to, to have a graven image on a coin with which you're going to buy the paschal lamb. You know, that's a no-go. So, of course, they had to change it into currency. That would be more acceptable, that had a Jewish currency at that time had palm leaves and uh, things right. like that, uh, plants and so on. So you would take this coinage with, with, the, <laughs> with, with the image right. on it and exchange it for... Yes, in context, the money changers in the temple were courtyard really were simply fulfilling one of the functions of that, of that uh, uh, ritual. How that gets construed then, after the fact, away from the context uh, becomes n negative and usurious. Uh, Paula? Bernard Leitar, who started the European Common Currency, told me that the first use of a gold coin was a shekel with a bushel on it. And the only thing it could be used for was sex with the goddess at the time, the, whenever the harvest was, that they were supposed to enliven the farmers to then plant well, well, thank you. I think that's thank you. I think that's beyond the scope of our current <laughs> topic. Um, okay, but thank you. All right. So, um, how do the Jews survive 
these conditions. You have to come up, I'm talking about the Middle Ages, you have to come up with a self-understanding that allows you to endure. That self-understanding for the Christians, the understanding was what Arnie said, that they were there as a remnant and needed to be, needed to be there so that they could finally accept Christ when the sec- in the second coming. That wasn't what the Jews were thinking about. But what the Jews had was what we call a theology of exile, meaning that we're here for a reason. We've been exiled for our sins, right? There's a purpose to our ongoing existence in exile because one day we will return to our home, right? To Jerusalem. This is all over the prayer book. It's all over everything. It's it's how the Jews rationalized the mess they were in. Now, they didn't make it up. Interestingly, they were primed for it. Remember, I told you, I shared with you Psalms from 500 BCE. Go even further back. We were slaves in Egypt. And we had to come back to our homeland. The whole Jewish story, again, which makes us unusual, if not unique, as a national entity, is that we understand ourselves as constantly coming and going from our homeland. That exile is an is part of the rhythm of somehow of our condition and our history. And that our moral behavior, our moral behavior is contingent on whether we get to be in our land or not. We don't just deserve it. Right? We will talk about dreams of modern Zionism that eliminate that sense that to be in our homeland, so Zionism is going to be sh- completely shot through with a sense of moral idealism. Uh, uh, then there are other streams of Zionism that emerge in contrast to that that become what would you would call worshipping of the state itself without the moral component that had made up, we're going to talk about that, that had made up such a big, giant part of Jewish self-understanding. But the way we understood ourselves as a people in exile and in these horrible conditions is that someday, someday the Messiah will come and restore us to our homeland And in the meantime, we have to continue living in exile. And that gives you a reason to not give up. Do you follow what I'm saying, everybody? Uh, So I saw a few hands. Joan? You used the word sin, and I don't get that. Well, you read the Bible. Yeah. Um, Over and over, our our, uh, um, right to live in the promised land is explicitly contingent on whether we fulfill the commandments. And if we don't, God will be angry with us and will expel us from our land. Okay, so the definition of sin is in that context. Okay. Exactly. All right. I exactly. Ivy. Um, will, will the Messiah come, come based on our moral uh, behavior? That is the general understanding. It's not, a, I can't say that. The idea of the Messiah is so far-flung and so variegated, depending on where you are in, in history and where in the Jewish world. But overall, yes, Elijah, the prophet, is, is wandering the world, seeing whether we are living up to the commandments. And yes, the Messiah will come based on whether we are merit, merit it. But we can't bring it... But... This was a spiritualized and essentially non, 
historic or political way of understanding things. We weren't moving to the land of Israel. We were waiting till we knew it was time from a supernatural source. That defines the Middle Ages in, in that way. The idea in modernity that human beings are the actors, not God, is what leads to a political Zionist movement. Helen, and then I'll come to this side of the table. It sort of it makes the idea of what you said, that they, even though they thought they were assimilated, they always were considered the other. But you're saying they considered themselves the other themselves in their psyche, that we yes. have this in our mind. So it's, a, it, it's, it's a system, everybody. Like every family system. To make it last, everybody has to play. Right? So anti-Semitism and oppression are externally imposed, politically and economically, and internally coped with by coming up with rationales that allow one to continue to endure. And so the exile, the, the, so, uh, in, so the, think about all the isms you know. Think about sexism and a woman who decides she must have done it, she must have done something wrong to deserve being assaulted, right? Uh, it, was, uh, it must have been me, right? Think about it. That's the only way that these things can persist over a long period of time, that these power systems stay in place. Think about African Americans. Think about, you know, you, know, you blame yourself. That's, what, that's basic psychology. And the Jews found, and to, in order to survive, think about early childhoods. Any, any of us who've done therapy, the decisions we made as, a ch- as children, if you've been in therapy, you know, that my dad must be angry because I'm doing something wrong. Therefore, I'm going to do everything I can to not get my dad mad. And if it, he does get mad, it must be me. Right? We're just trying to make sense of the world. And this happens in childhood, and it happens in groups, and it's just the way it is. But if, if, if the greater society that we're assimilating into in modern Europe or in the United States now. If, if the population has in their, in their mind that we will always be the other, and that's what, I think that's what led to some of the statements now in, in the political ah. thing, is that these people have an allegiance other than to us. They are the other. Uh, yes, yes, the Jews have always been thought of as a fifth column by some. Part of what makes modernity promising, Helen, is that not everybody believes that. But what about ourselves? <coughs> what about we ourselves? We believe we are the other, but someday we will go back to this land, the physical return to the land. Uh, we have that in our head now. I'm not planning it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, Helen's giving a great description of what it means to be a modern person. It means to have ambivalent identities. This was not true pre-modern. We didn't have these choices. Oh, I'll move to Israel and be a citizen there. Oh, I'll stay in the U.S. We didn't have any choices, right? So you're describing precisely what makes us modern. Uh, And one of the benefits of that is that we understand now, those of us who are reflective enough, that we have ambivalence and that identity is a complex thing. That's a modern phenomenon. It's not a pre-modern phenomenon. But I think there's a backlash now amongst a lot of American Jews saying, 
maybe we're making a big mistake. You know, they really don't accept. That. Absolutely, maybe we're Helen. In a dream world, okay. like the Europeans. Let's did. just talk. Let's just say this: racism never went away after Barack Obama was elected. <laughs> Am I right? Anti-Semitism doesn't go away because the Nazis are defeated. These are endemic parts of societies that continue to function either in broad daylight or at the margins, and they oscillate. And uh, we're dealing with that. There's no, there's no, there's no cut and dried line here. We are, we are walking through a complex uh, environment. So that's it. I think the Jews in the United States now are more insistent that they're Americans. I mean, maybe then, I don't know, maybe the European Jews were also in Germany. We're, were, they were, the Jews in Germany were way more insistent that they were good Germans than Americans, American Jews need to be. In America, American Jews, it's acceptable in America for an Irish American to feel attached to Ireland, for a Jewish American to feel attached to Israel. That's acceptable here. In Germany, it was a whole different story. If you couldn't show that you were wedded to the fatherland with your heart and soul, you were an other, right? So American nationalism is different than those European nationalisms in that there's some, there's some uh, slack in there to be hyphenated as an American. Uh, but I don't want to go on about that right now, Helen, because we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, uh, now, uh, yes? Going back a little bit to the waiting and waiting until we go back to the land, mm -hmm. we also have the Orthodox, certain sects of Orthodox Jews who don't want to go back to the land because the Messiah hasn't come. And we still right. have right. some Orthodox Jews in Israel who are not participating of the civil society because of this. Because they don't accept the political right. so um, creation of the state of Israel because the Messiah didn't come. Right. right. So that's another piece of it. Uh, yes, and we're going to get to that piece too. Marka? I take your point about modernity, but I just wanted to add in like a figure like Spinoza who has to deal with double exile. You know, Spinoza is the first, it, it can fairly be said to be the first modern Jew. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Amsterdam, the seeds of modernity are planted in Amsterdam in the time of Spinoza. It takes a couple of centuries. Yeah. But Ms. Spinoza is recognized and thought about as the first modern Jew. And he has to live neither being really Jewish or Dutch. And it, I mean, it's exactly. a real exile. It's a real exile. Uh, and, um, oh, the story of Spinoza is amazing because he came from the, the uh, Muranos, the hidden Jews, mm -hmm. who had practiced Judaism in, in private, in secret, but maintained external Christian identities under the Spanish Inquisition. And then, lo and behold, Amsterdam became the, one of the first cities outside the grip of the church. And Jews who went there from Portugal and Spain and other places who'd been hiding came out as Jews again in Amsterdam. It's such an interesting story. <clears throat> Amsterdam's the beginning of modernity in that, in that way. Okay. Uh, I just recommend a book called The Spinoza Problem that really fits into this by Irving. I know you know you love Irving alone. And it's actually because there was an SS officer who loved Spinoza and saved his library. So it really brings up a lot of these issues about identity and, and who gets hurt. It's mm -hmm. a great book. And these issues of identity are modern questions. 
That's how I began the class, and that's how we're going to, I'm not going to, we've got to keep that in mind. Uh, because it's the revolution of modernity that creates us as the Jews uh, that, that we are today, um, who are confused, ambivalent, <laughs> pulled in many directions. This is the function of modernity, that our, our, our somewhat um, um, uh, integrated identity in that debased condition that I described, debased externally. Internally, Jewish life was very rich, right? Uh, was shattered when we were let out of the ghettos. And that's what I want to talk about now. Ah, next week. We have, <laughs> I, I think, I, I'm telling you, I think this is really worthwhile. If we don't have this foundation, we cannot understand uh, modernity and, Nash, and this, this movement. So this is very worthwhile. Let's see, with the couple minutes that I have left, I think what I want to say, and then we'll pick this up uh, the next time, um, is that modernity is a revolution in human consciousness and in the way we organize our societies. Uh, so as the age of reason dawns, and as the authority of the church gets challenged by so many uh, uh, early modern thinkers, and as the idea that reason and individuals can, can actually, don't have to rely on mysteries and doctrine, and a whole new way, of, and that a good society can be built based on reason. Right? Everything the United States uh, 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 the founders were, were immersed in. The ground is uh, prepared for a new, a new Europe, um, an idea that will eventually spread around the entire world, um, uh, which is that individuals have autonomy, rights, and uh, the ability to choose their path. The first Jewish group in Europe to be emancipated from the ghetto. In other words, they were contained literally in a living area. The gates would be closed. The advantage of that for the Jews is that they could run their own affairs internally. The disadvantage, everything we've described. They're sitting ducks, right? And uh, was Napoleon. Napoleon, after the French Revolution, convened a Sanhedrin, as he called it, a con convened the, the leading rabbis of France and said to them, in effect, I'm going to give you a bunch of questions about your practices because if you, I want to give you citizenship. But if I give you citizenship, you have to give up the autonomy of your court system and become part of France. You have to give up your control over uh, your own internal civic affairs and civil affairs and become part of France, this new thing. It's a new thing, this nation state where there are citizens. Um, and uh, you, so, all of a sudden, the Jews are emancipated. 
And with emancipation comes incredible sense of freedom, slowly, number one, an incredible sense of dislocation. Because all of a sudden, well, which school should I send my kid to? And everything's open on Saturdays in France. If I run a business, I can't observe the Sabbath. And I want to keep kosher, but I've been invited to here to dine. What am I supposed to do? And, and, and. Jewish cohesive identity is shattered. And all of a sudden, Jews are asking, how Jewish should I be? That question, how Jewish should I be, is a modern question. It didn't exist before this transformation. All the questions we've talked, if anybody who's been busy talking about being Jewish have made yourself like exhausted over, (laughs) didn't exist prior to this. Does that make sense? So what happens then in the 19th century, which we will start next time, is all the Jewish responses. Oh, in addition to how Jewish I to be, there's the other hidden factor, which is that, yeah, you're welcome, but not really. Right? So that our headlong launch into European society is met with incredible mixed signals. Right? So the story of Judaism in Europe, 19th century Europe is the story of dozens of different responses. Should I be, maybe just I should be religious. Maybe Judaism is just a religion. Maybe I should just be a cultural Jew. Maybe I should convert. Maybe I should uh, uh, become a Jewish nationalist. Zionism is one of the responses to this new dilemma of being a Jew. Prior to that, you could be a good Jew or a bad Jew. <laughs> you know, you could be the one hanging out who never goes to shul. But it wasn't like, am I really? How? It, you didn't. You didn't have to make these choices. Part of the delight for many Jews of spending time in Jerusalem is that a lot of the choices are, like, you don't have to make so many choices. You're in a Jewish country. Things close at Friday afternoon. You know, da da da. So uh, that's part of this, what the Zionist revolution was trying to resolve was this fractured and scattered Jewish identity that modernity creates. Bless you. Okay, I'm finished. Okay. Okay, so um, we'll close there, and um, I hope you all can make it next week. This is exciting. Thank you for all your contributions. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on.